Hello and welcome to Mother Bodies, the podcast about health after birth and why it matters. I'm your host, Rosie Taylor. I'm a health journalist and I'm also a mum. In this series, I'm asking some brilliant, wise and witty guests to share their thoughts on how the politics of postnatal health affects us all and the big ideas which could change our lives for the better. Most importantly, we'll also be sharing our own stories of health and recovery after birth and our honest experiences of motherhood. That's because it's only by sharing our stories that we can empower each other to ensure we all know what to expect and to make sure we all get the care and support we need, both after birth and throughout motherhood. This is Mother Bodies. I'm delighted to have here with me today Elaine Miller, Elaine is a women's health physiotherapist and fellow of the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. She's also an award-winning stand-up comedian who says the word fanny a lot on stage. You may know her on social media as Gusset Grippers. She's been described as a frank, funny and factual physiotherapist, that's quite a mouthful, and a recovered incontinent. She's passionate about what she describes as leaky ladies, fallen fannies and vexatious vaginas. Her latest show, Viva Your Volva, The Whole Story, is on at the Gilded Balloon in Edinburgh every day throughout August as part of this year's Fringe Festival. I began by asking Elaine about the concept behind her show, Viva Your Volva. She said she was inspired to write it after learning that 50% of women do not know the difference between their vulva and their vagina, a pretty staggering statistic. I'm intrigued to find out when you found out the difference between your own vulva and vagina. Yeah, I don't know, actually. That's a really good question. Probably when I was at uni. It was probably when we were doing the women's health thing, our section on women's health. It would have been mentioned then. And then I think I paid attention to it properly after I'd had kids and our eldest was a girl. So I had the universal issue of what were we going to use to describe her body. So I was probably 30 before I really properly thought about it. Why do you think we've ended up in a situation where we know so little about our own anatomy as women? Um, My personal theory is it's just to do with good old shame and stigma. The women's bodies are for the benefit of other people rather than ourselves. What I see in clinic is that women are embarrassed by their vulvas because they don't see enough to know that theirs is normal. So the majority of women apologise for their appearance, which is kind of depressing like the common thing is they say oh I'm really sorry I haven't tidied up because they're worried about their pubic hair and I'm like well, that's all right neither have I <laughs> so a lot of women the the images that they see of female genitalia come from porn which are either surgically or digitally altered or just unusual looking people and that creates anxiety because you think that you're abnormal. What was it about having children that sort of I mean, this probably sounds like a really obvious question, but, you know, obviously having children through your vagina, what was it about having children that <laughs> suddenly made you more aware of that area? But was there something that happened to you that uh, sort of changed your interaction with that area? Yes, it suddenly made itself known. <laughs> <laughs> it had been, I think when you're, when you're given birth, there's a, a bit of labour that gets called the ring of fire. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't understood what exactly that meant until I was like, aha, <laughs> it's very appropriately named. It's a strange thing getting pregnant and having children when you're a person that you consider yourself to be quite educated and understand bodies because it is my job. And then you you turn into this sort of animal instinct 
takes over, it's really fascinating. The way that my body responded to my infants before I did blew my mind. Like I never woke up because I'm a really slack mother. So when the babies were crying in the night, I didn't really waken, but my boobs did. So it was my boobs that woke me up. And I thought, that's incredible. How does that work? And I was kind of glad that it did, because it'd be a shame, you know, if the children were left screaming in their cock because I've got a slack mother. So that was really interesting to me because I'm not aware that men's bodies behave in the same way to children and babies and this little person's completely dependent on you breastfeeding totally blew my mind that my body was producing food so I think it was that that it was a real lesson that everything changes it's not just your uterus that's pregnant my nose changed I could smell things differently didn't know that that happened so Although I considered myself to have a lot of knowledge, there were all these secrets that women who have had children understand. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a thing. Why did nobody tell me? Because it's fascinating. And that must be a phrase that you hear like over and over again in your work is, why did nobody tell me about this? And I think that's yeah. such a, a major thing. I mean, why do you think we don't talk about this until after it's happened? Mm, well, that would take you into a long rant about patriarchy and feminism and... <laughs> just sexist structures in society and a lot of it is because we don't know that much about women's bodies from a science point of view mm -hmm. the amount of research that's been done into how we operate is minuscule compared to men because since the thalidomide scandal women were removed from research projects because we have messy bodies that have hormones that go up and down so we mess up their stats and then the risk of how that individual that was in a study if she was pregnant at the time what do you do if you're going to do harm to the developing fetus that's less than ideal um, and the consequence of that is that we know barely anything about basics so for instance if a man has got erectile dysfunction there's now 14 different types of medication that he can be offered to help with that if a woman has a sexual dysfunction there's one medication that we can have and it's rubbish or you can't get it in the nhs if you drink when you're taking this medication you'll probably have a stroke if you take it every day for a month you get an extra quarter of an orgasm but it doesn't work if you've got any body image issues any relationship issues or any mood disorders which basically rules out all the women. <laughs> yes. That's all of us. And all of us who'd quite like to have a drink before we get down to it. So men's erectile dysfunction is very interesting to science and medicine and the pharmacology industry. Five times more money has been invested in one of men's health issues compared to all of the money that's invested in any hormonal based issue for women's bodies, including breastfeeding. That's astonishing. We're just not interesting. Yeah, we were only half the population. So, you know, we don't really matter, do we? I mean, you sort of mentioned we live in this patriarchal society and you're someone that obviously is very confident in yourself and you're described as feisty. But, you know, even then, when you were talking about new motherhood, you were describing yourself sort of in a self-deprecating way as a slack mother, just because you were so exhausted that you couldn't always wake when your child was crying. And I just think it's really interesting that even someone with your knowledge and experience has to laugh off anything other than the sort of idea of the perfect mother as, oh, I'm just slack, you know, sorry about me. I mean, do you think that's the case? Yeah, that's really an interesting observation. It's universal. I had to go and speak to my GP about something recently and they were trying to give... He, I had articulated my problem quite well, I thought, and the GP had, an, I had high blood pressure 
And what I needed was medication to sort the blood pressure, I thought, because that was an objective measurable thing. And what the GP was trying to give me was like an antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication because I was crying. So to be fair to the GP, how are you? I look depressed. Here's your medication to deal with your depression. But actually, I'm just really busy. I'm really flat out. I'm harassed all the time. And I've got this blood pressure issue. Can you just give me something to bring it down? Because I'd like to not have a stroke. I don't mm-hmm. have time to have a stroke. Just if you could treat it appropriately, that would be great. And I was unable to advocate for myself. I was unable to say, really? Like, of course I'm crying. All women come into a GP surgery and burst into tears because it's the first time that we've thought about ourselves for the last decade and we're yeah. stressed and harassed. And, and also, I guess sort of making the assumption that because you're crying that is a problem that needs to be fixed and actually maybe you're just crying because you're feeling a bit sad I mean not to not to take away from obviously people do have depression and it's very important that they get treated but the the idea that like oh you cried that's a problem it must be fixed is sort of quite strange as well I didn't have objective signs of depression. I wasn't unable to get out of my bed. I wasn't unable to you know, function society. I didn't have rumination of thoughts or any of those symptoms. I was just weeping. And most of that was frustration because I couldn't get my point across. And I've only got eight minutes. So your children are in their teens now. They're mm-hmm. 14, 16 and 18. You're saying that today, now, even with everything that you know, you're still finding yourself dismissed and not being listened to properly by medical professionals. When you had your children, did you find that you were able to get the medical help and support you needed for any of your postnatal health issues? That's a good question. It was different because you know, it's nearly 20 years ago now. So COVID has changed everything. And there's been such a loss of funding for these services. Everything is much more squeezed now. So when I had the kids, you would get midwifery support for 11 days postnatally and they would come to the house. And then you were handed over to the health visitor who used to come round and hold the baby and talk to me about, you know, just life. It was actually really very nice. But her job was to keep an eye on what was going on. And I had postnatal depression after I'd had our eldest and I was proper like, oh my goodness, absolutely bonkers. Um, So that led to a whole lot of intervention, which was really helpful at the time. It was really well done. There was a lot of support, but I don't know that it would happen in the same way now because how would you even diagnose somebody as having postnatal depression if you haven't seen them with the infant and you don't have a relationship with the family like the health visitor did in the olden days? Health visitors' jobs have moved much more into child protection and the sort of day-to-day support for new mums. I, I don't know who's doing it anymore. What I see from women that are coming into clinic is that new mums are largely pretty isolated unless they live close to where their family is or they've got a big network of friends who are all having children at the same time. There's a lot of women on their own with babies that are having to figure it out from mum's net. Whilst mum's net's a tremendous resource, I don't think it's quite the same as having somebody actually nurturing the mother. And that's a problem. Do you find or have you found in your clinics as a women's health physiotherapist that women come in and do that same thing of bursting into tears because it's sort of the first time anyone's listened to them since they had a baby? Yeah, and they're very they're vulnerable. If you think that there's something wrong with your genitals or if you don't have control of your bowel or your bladder or if you think your relationship's under threat because you're not able to be sexually active because it's painful, 
these are really fundamental core things about human dignity and what's important to you. And it gets underestimated in society. There's a lot of myths around women's health. So when I ask somebody, you know, how much are you leaking? Which is a bit of a weird question because it's unlikely that you've thought in terms of millilitres. And it's not unusual to get the answer of, well, just the usual amount because they think it's normal, because that's what their mum said or their granny said, or it's the narrative that they've been given. You've had a baby, well, you're going to wet yourself a bit. You're 70, well, what do you expect? It's your age. And these things are not true. Do you feel that fundamentally, if pelvic floor and continence issues were dealt with after birth, that you wouldn't have anywhere near as many people in their sort of 70s and 80s with those issues? Yes, but actually they're looking at doing it earlier. So they were consulting on whether we should be putting this stuff into sex ed in schools. Oh, right. Because if you've got, if you look at when leaking happens across the course of a woman's lifetime, 20% of 15 to 25 year olds wet themselves, females. So these are the girls that drop out of sports because, well, you're not going to play netball if when you catch the ball, you wet yourself a little bit because you're 15, 16, 17. You're self-conscious anyway about participating in sport and the boys all can see your boobs moving and it's it's an excruciating time <laughs> to be a female. I remember it with shuddering. So if we had a way that the school teachers, the PE teachers, had an understanding about this, then they could ask the girls that were dropping out or coming up with excuses about not participating in sport because we know that if they stop being active at that age, they never go back to it. And activity is so important for women's health across the span of your lifetime because coronary heart disease is the biggest cause of premature death in females in industrialised countries. So we need these girls to keep moving and just find a way that appeals to them and makes it work. So if we could intervene with them at that age, if they were not dry at night or if they were wetting themselves, if they laugh or cough or sneeze or jump, then we could change their life forever. And also, I suppose it's introducing the conversation early on before anyone thinks about getting pregnant or having a baby or realises afterwards that actually Mm -hmm. this is something that you can do something about. And actually, it's a muscle and you need to exercise it like all your other ones or else it won't work. Yeah. And I think if, if kids left school or students left university, if they understood what normal peeing, normal pooing and normal sexual function were, I'd be out of a job. Because it's these issues, particularly with menstruation, like if you've got really heavy flooding periods, how do you know? Because yeah. it's just your normal. And if it runs in families, if your granny had terrible problems with flooding and was incapacitated for three days a month, that's the family normal. That's just how it is for us. So at which point do you realise that actually, well, nobody else is struck down with pain and puking and all these symptoms? It takes a long, long time for the women to realise that, hang on, this isn't right because nobody else is like this. And if we don't talk about it, you never get that frame of reference. Are you able to to share with us what your own experience of incontinence was like and how you managed to become recovered, as you'd now describe yourself? <laughs> yes, you're right. I am fairly disinhibited, much to the horror of my teenagers. So I was fine until I had my daughter. And I'm a good case study because I was too fat. I wasn't doing my pelvic floor exercises. I knew I had a problem. And I was just too tired, too busy. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I never did it. Was this when you were pregnant with your first? After I'd had her. After you'd had her. With her, I'd had like really no birth injury at all. I was very, in fact, the midwife, (laughs) the midwife had a look, like, you know, they go down and they went, oh, 
there's nothing there at all. You must have very stretchy tissue. <laughs> what a compliment. Well, thank you. <laughs> but, um, but I did have a very long pushing stage with her, so that increases your risk. And I was a bit dribbly, and I had all this education, and yet I just didn't didn't comply, didn't do what I should have done. And were you um, a women's health physio at the time, or did you just have general physiotherapy training? I had done some. So I would often land up with, my boss was a specialist, so I learned a lot from her and I would help her in her clinics. Yeah, you were literally working in women's health, but still not fully aware of what was happening to yourself. Worse than that, I knew and I accepted it and I meant to do something about it and I never. Oh. Yeah. Which is so easy, isn't it? Because you're so busy. And these issues, I knew it could be fixed, but women are not good at putting ourselves first. If I had an hour to myself, then I was not going to spend it going to a women's health clinic to have somebody peer up my bits. I'm going to sit down and watch some crappy TV and think about how blessed I am. So the youngest started school, the middle one was at nursery and I was expecting. No, I had him, he was a baby. And it was this the sack race for the parents at Sports Day because you've got to get the parents involved. And I um, wet myself in the sack and it was really awful because you just stop dead because you think, oh my God, this is not just a little leak that you can hide. And of course the whole school environment is there and some of the mums could see my face. So they gathered round me and sort of like shuffled me off the field and <laughs> took me to the toilet where there's these tiny little toilets that are for little tiny bottoms, which is not what I have. And got me tidied up. They had one had the baby, one had the, like, they were so helpful because that's what women do. Did they did they realise straight away what it was? Did they recognise it in them? From their own experiences, do you think? Well, because these things are so common, like she's just had a baby, why is she doing the sack race would be the, the <laughs> obvious question. Because like, I'm sleep deprived and slightly manic. Oh dear, that was a mistake. So yeah, it probably took me a good five years to actually pay attention to my pelvic floor. Is which, that from the birth of your first child until yeah. your youngest was sort of coming up yeah. to one? So the average is seven. The, the issue is that women are used to dealing with mess and we're used to dealing with pads and we're used to dealing with everything. So it has to get to a point where the problem is intruding in what you want to do enough to make you pay attention to it. There's just a narrative of, I will get it done, but somebody has to do the cooking and the cleaning and the nurturing and the raising. And it's really hard to put it ahead of everybody else's needs. Yeah. The, the only women that I've seen actually prioritise this when they're at a newborn stage are athletes. Women who are very driven and they're goal oriented and they know that if they're wetting themselves, they're not going to perform. And it's so important to them to get back to the level of performing. They're the only ones that I see coming super early. Most women, it's it's years. It's not uncommon to find women in clinic and they've been wetting themselves for 20 years. And you can land up with quite a complex presentation of a woman coming into clinic just because of the time that's passed. Mm-hmm. And usually it's easy to unpick. I mean, the, the, the majority of women who come to physio will get better. There's for stress incontinence, one where you laugh or cough or sneeze, there's an 84% cure rate in six sessions. Wow, that's so amazing. The majority of women do great if we can get them into clinic. But if we could get them into clinic sooner rather than later, or just give them the education so they can manage it themselves, then they wouldn't get into these awful, awful problems because it breaks people. It absolutely, the mental health 
impact of not having body control is massive. In terms of sort of access to women's health physios and specialists in this area, do you think that there is enough in this country or should we be doing more to sort of make sure women routinely see a physiotherapist, especially after birth? Well, that's often what we think they do in France. France is kind of held up as being the model of excellence. So it's six sessions with a specialist physio is how we think it works. But a lot of the time it's very prescriptive. There's not a one-to-one assessment. It's that you've had a baby, you're going to do this six times and now you'll be fine. There is, you know, flashes of absolutely brilliant services, but across the board, I'm not sure that the standards are that high according to what I've been told by people that go to France. The place that does it really well, I think, is Australia because they have government-funded resources. They have a thing, the Contents Foundation of Australia, and they have TV adverts, they have a phone helpline, they have (laughs) specialists that get into their little car and drive out into the desert for four days to go to remote communities to go and speak to the women and give them education. And that, I think, changed the, the taboo around it. So now if you go into an Australian city, Every corner has got a private physiotherapist that does Pilates and women's health. They are 10 a penny. Whereas here we have, um, there's 900 registered specialists that are members of this particular specialist group. But there are more of us than that because you're not obliged to be a member of the specialist group. So every hospital will have a specialist physio. But we don't actually know how many of us there are. We just know that there is definitely not enough. The main thing I would do, though, is not so much have everybody come and see a one-to-one physio because in clinic, somewhere between a quarter and a third of the new appointments that we see, we only see once. So that woman probably didn't need to come into clinic. What she needed was education and advice. Then we follow her up on the phone and she's fine. So that could be done remotely like they do in Australia but we don't have any centralised resource in the UK for people to go to. The growth of Instagram and influencing mummies, uh, that has been really interesting to watch because they, some of them do a really, really good job, but it's more about you know how well they're coping rather than the truth of it, which is maybe they are like that. Maybe they are coping in a way that means that they've got time to sort out accessories and straighten their hair and look fantastic. But for me, a good day was managing to get everybody out of the house on time with nobody having a raisin up their nose. Like that, it was really basic. Yeah. <laughs> really. Everyone's alive today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty much the standard I was aiming for. I was just going to say, I do find some of the influencers and the mums on Instagram a bit problematic because there are some, like you say, who are really, actually really good and quite honest and quite frank about, oh, you know, it's really tough. But I sort of think, yeah, it's really tough, but you still have 200,000 followers on Instagram. So you're doing quite well, really. Um, So it's difficult, isn't it? The images of people that we see, even those are sort of saying, oh, I'm not doing very well. Like, actually, they're probably still doing much better than the rest of us on some measure you know so it's Mm -hmm. difficult you can rarely compare yourself with people that are actually normal what worries me though is there's a lack of people with qualifications influencing so there's when you look at the information that's out there it can perpetuate the myths because it's people giving their opinion rather than evidence-based information and that's the biggest problem when it comes to sex related issues so female health issues that is the main issue that I have in clinic because it's not unusual for me to have women that don't know that they've got three holes and their wee eyebrows shoot up going what like well mm -hmm. 
because who teaches you that? And the number of women that think that they pee out their clitoris and their ignorance about their own body, it's not their fault. It's just an example that women's health and women's issues, women's anatomy, women's well-being is not a priority. I'm hoping things are changing now and I'm not sure what your teenagers have been taught in school, but certainly even when I was at school in the early noughties as a teenager, I don't remember ever really being told anything useful about female anatomy and I certainly didn't really understand the difference between a vulva and a vagina until I was well into my don't know probably late 20s early 30s again and and when I started writing more seriously about health as Mm -hmm. part of my work as a journalist but yeah realistically I think it's like you say it was only through your work that you learned about it and same for me and there's no sort of like you know standard education obviously it's important for women but there needs to be the same education for for boys as well definitely and if anything I would say with real depression I think it's worse because if we're not giving young people evidence-based information that's factual, the place that they're getting their information from is porn. And that's not brilliant. It's not very realistic. From what I know about female sexual function, it's not a huge representation of women actually having a nice time. So it's interesting because the young women have very little expectations that, that they will have any sexual pleasure if they're in a relationship or having an encounter. And um, that really worries me. So I would change sex ed entirely and you know, revamp the whole thing. That and doing something really radical to reduce the taboos and just look at the lunacy that 51% of the population is female and yet we're not, we're not getting what we deserve. That's not okay. Marching in the street, getting our vulvas out. <laughs> getting our vulvas out outside Parliament. <laughs> Well, that sort of brings me on nicely to your show, which, uh, as far as I understand, you're going to assemble a giant vulva on stage in Edinburgh, which is fantastic. What made you decide to turn women's health, which is obviously quite a serious and sort of emotive subject, into a comedy show? And how's it gone down with audiences? (laughs) Yes, that was that was alcohol related. (laughs) I had a hobby of stand up. So I was just doing it for fun. And then a patient told me a story about her wetting herself on the doorstep in front of her neighbour, but it was like you know, a huge amount of urine loss that she had. It, was, it would have been awful for most people, but Scottish culture generally is self-deprecating. So she was funny. She was making it really, really funny. And I said to her, can I use that story in a five-minute thing for the, the stage? And what caught my attention was afterwards, four women in the audience came and said, oh, me too, that happens to me. Now, they didn't know it was my job. And they hadn't spoken to their GP, but they would come and speak to a random stranger in a basement bar about, you know, Solidarity Sister, it happens to me as well. So that's why I thought maybe if you did it as as a stage show and make it funny, that gets over the embarrassment point of view. Because why are these women speaking about it? That There's something different about being in a comedy environment than there is in a clinic environment. So I wrote this show about pelvic floors and it was basically all the information that you would give somebody if they came into clinic, just, you know, presented <laughs> as a fart joke. And it did well. And it won the Comedy Award in Australia, which I was awfully pleased about because it's very flattering. And I did some work with a university in Melbourne, Monash University. We did a literature review looking at using humour as a health promotion tool. So this year, the show is, I'm going to see if we can measure if it encourages help seeking. Because I've got evidence 
that it does, but it's not robust data. So I need to get that number because if I if I had decent data that I could present to funders and the government, then maybe we could do a health promotion campaign. The advantage of using humour is that you can make a joke on the issue and not on the person because people are so vulnerable about this. But if you can make people laugh about something, then they talk about it. And it's interesting watching the audience because there's always somebody going to her pal like that. That's you. She's talking about you. (laughs) And they tend to come in groups. So it's unusual to get women coming on their own. They tend to come with a friend or a group of friends. So then you've got a socially cohesive group that are nagging each other saying that woman said, why have you not gone to get seen? And this show is just about vulvas because what is a vulva? Like, what are all the bits for and the cases of women looking for labiaplasty like it's gp surgeries tend to get one inquiry a week now in the uk from women who think that their vulva is is abnormal and they need to get bits of it cut off so that comes because they don't know what a labia is like what its job is what it's there for they just know that when they've looked at porn they're absent that's why I assemble a vulva. I've got my friend making me a very sparkly sequence and it's on magnets so it can be done really quickly because you don't, <laughs> don't have time to figure out poppers and things. So the bits will just go in and talk about each bit and what it's for and hopefully have a laugh. Sounds amazing. Well, if you're in Edinburgh this summer, then please go along and see Elaine. It sounds like a fantastic show. Elaine, thank you so much for coming on today. You've been amazing and I've learned loads. if you'd like to see elaine's show then please check out the show notes i've put a link in there to where you can buy tickets you can also follow elaine on instagram she's at gusset underscore grippers or on twitter where she's at gussy grips Elaine may be medically qualified, but I am not. So this is just a reminder again that nothing in this series should be taken as a substitute for proper medical advice. If you are at all worried about your health, then please do see your GP or contact a women's health physiotherapist, especially if you're worried about incontinence issues. Thank you so much for listening today. Please do like us, follow us, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps please the algorithm gods and means more people will get to see and hear what we've got to say about postnatal health. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to leave us a review, even better. Don't forget, you can also follow Mother Bodies on Twitter and Instagram at Mother Bodies, where you can get highlights from each episode and some sneak previews of what's coming up. Thanks again and see you next time. Bye.